So here we go. I have a great podcast today. I have Scott Stramello here, who I follow on Twitter religiously because I love his comments and we sometimes go back and forth. And in my effort to bring everybody a different point of view, I got him on my podcast. So Scott, welcome to the Wacky World. Can you tell everybody kind of about your diabetes journey, how you got to doing what you're doing today? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, I guess the first thing I can say is, number one, I'm approaching my Jocelyn 50-year medal, should I choose to claim it. I was diagnosed at age seven in 1976, the year the bicentennial was going on. And so I'm not new to this. And then I, I guess... I God, I have to look back. I think it was around 2006 or seven. I started blogging on the subject and there was a whole gaggle of people that were blogging about diabetes and their experiences with it. And part of it was just because it's an invisible disease and people wanted to share with anybody that was willing to listen. So I was very active in the space more active in some years than others. And that's just based on what I had going on outside of work and stuff. But that led to Twitter, which I liked because at the time it was 140 characters. You had to squeeze everything in real succinct pieces and you didn't have to elaborate unless you wanted to. So I'm still on Twitter and I still blog, believe it or not, every once in a while, but only when I have something to say. So, but it's all, you know, diabetes related. And my interest has always been in particular, what I call the business of diabetes, because I think a lot of people back in the day didn't really consider it as an industry, which it is. And so I kind of unpacked it. I worked in consulting for like 18 years. And so I, I did a lot of analytics on it from a strategic business standpoint and say, what's, where's this going? if any place yeah so it sounds like we have a little similarity there in the background so you have like this great i don't want to say you go on a rant but you do um, <laughs> hey i've been doing that for as long as i've been doing this so you can you can say it. <laughs> i think one of my like my second blog post back in the day was today's rant you know because but i was talking about things that were going on at the time and it was nobody else was saying it besides me and i'm like i can't be the only one thinking this way so now i noticed one of your favorite topics is the out-of-pocket cost of uh insulin how did you i mean obviously you're a patient i i don't remember are you on a pump a pen what what yeah currently i'm on mdi and part of that was a reflection of the fact that Insulin and syringes is by far the cheapest delivery method. And there was a time when I was on a very high deductible plan. I think my personal deductible was like $3,500 or something. So, and yes, my employer gave me a health reimbursement account in HRA for part of that. But, you know, I witnessed firsthand the ever-growing price increases and I was paying them out of pocket. It wasn't always like that. I can remember the days when you'd go, nobody had insurance that paid for prescriptions originally. It was, they were all called indemnity plans and it was meant for catastrophic hospitalizations and stuff like that. 
So you pretty much paid for everything out of pocket. You know, and I remember the days when insulin was like 40, 40 bucks a vial, something like that. But then it steadily started increasing to the point where now I think it's, if you pay the suggested retail price, it's like 200 and something per vial. And I'm thinking to myself, that's insane. So I started exploring why is this happening? Where is fault to blame? And I discovered a whole host of different entities involved, many of which people didn't even think about. And each one has their finger in the pot. And the question is, is there a way to circumvent this in some way? And so that's been my focus in recent years. So what's your, you know, there's been a lot of legislation in various states. Yep. What's your thoughts on on those kind of legislations? I have a couple of thoughts on it. One, I don't necessarily think price cap legislation is the most effective solution, but it does work. And the reason it works is because it forces insurance companies, which are receiving rebates of 74, 75% off the bogus list price for these products to give it to the patients whose purchases are actually generating those rebates in the first place. So it's a solution. It's not the best solution, but it's one that works and delivers immediate benefit in a situation that defies easy fixes. Is it the way I would do it? Probably not, but I suspect this is going to be an evolving space over time. Do you think the uh, average patient even has a clue of all the, you know, you've got the wholesale price, which nobody pays? Right. Well, that's one of the myths that I busted because, in fact, some patients do pay it. They go to the pharmacy, they say, your cost for this vial of Humalog or Novolog is $229. And they pay it thinking that's the cost. When the reality is, pharma had long had the excuse, nobody pays list price. Well, as it turns out, more than half of people have high deductible plans and they are exposed to it if they don't, you know, if they don't have a workaround solution and they think I'm going to buy this because it contributes towards my deductible. Little do they realize that only 25% of what they're actually paying is going towards their deductible. You know, so it's kind of fuzzy math. So yes, I agree with you on that, but I think Anyway, that's those are my initial thoughts on on the whole rebate mess. Well, all, all, I, all I'm really saying is that there's all of these. It's very difficult to draw a straight line saying that Lily priced it or Lily or Novo priced it at X, but then you've got the discounts, then you've got the rebates, and then you've got the payers, then you've got the PBMs, and you know, then you've got you know Walgreens. You know, let's say Walgreens is the example here. They they want to make money too. So I you know I. My contention has always been that you cannot draw a straight line. There's all these, you know, all these people, you know, and, and my other contention is, and, and I don't know if you feel this way, but, you know, everybody wants better patient access, but that doesn't mean better patient outcomes. That's very true. That's kind of a different conversation, but, you know, I think with insulin for, for the type one population anyway, it's life or death. You don't have it. You're going to die. You're going to go into DKA in a couple of days and bye bye bye. 
where it gets a little more fuzzy is the type two audience, which is much bigger. They benefit from insulin sometimes, but they don't really need it to survive. And so you, you get into messiness like that. Have, have you looked at all into the GLP one space? Have you, you know, only to the extent that I, I, I remember when it first emerged, I think, um, what was that? Bieta yeah, was yeah, the, original, the original one by Amelin Pharmaceuticals, which was ironic because Amelin is a hormone made in the islets of Langerhans besides insulin. And actually there are biosynthetic versions of that on the market. I don't think very many people use it, but yeah. So Anyway, what was the original question? I, I lost track. <laughs> the original question is you follow the GLP-1 space. Oh, yeah, yeah, GLPs. So I do watch it insofar as I do see it as the space that the diabetes industry is lusting after right now. Novo Nordisk, Lilly, and various other drugs, drug companies are, you know, are all seeing this as the gold mine to be chased. But even that, you know, right now there's like a couple of biosimilars of Novo Nordisk's, which is Victoza, I think is the original name. There's a couple of those in development, one of which is from Viatris and Biocon. Another is from Lanette and HEC, a Chinese pharmaceutical company. Those are two that have announced their intention in that space. And of course, all you have to do is turn on your TV and see all these commercials for it. Is it something that I'm acute, you know, acutely interested in? Not particularly, although you do see it in the bottom lines of like Novo Nordisk, for example, an increasing shift of its revenue sources are coming from that, not from insulin. Now, now let's let's go back to the insulin just for a second. Could I I am kind of curious. You know, we just had the first interchangeable long-acting insulin, which everybody made a big deal out of. I think it's, you know, doesn't matter to me because I don't think it makes a difference. <laughs> but I'm curious, like, do you have a regular audience that like either cheers you on or wants to rip you down? I mean, tell us about how that works. My audience was kind of, I say it's organic because it was just kind of like, and originally it was quite tiny. It was like 25 people. And then it just sort of, somebody else said, well, let me follow them because so-and-so follows them. And so it seems to be hovering for the last couple of years at about 3,500 people, which I presume are mostly interested in my comments about diabetes. There may be a couple others for different things, but but that's, so I think I have about 3,500 people. Well, that I, I, I kind of noticed that you're you spend a lot of time on the insulin area. Obviously, you're type one, so that you know yeah. area that's very near and dear to your heart. And and I and I haven't really seen you like venture into like the device space area. You know, like pumps or pens. You know, and you know, I am a former pump wearer myself. I wore one for a couple of years. It was the very first Animus pump ever created. It was still an independent company at the time, by funded by Dr. Catherine Cottrell. And, you know, she later sold it to, I think, J&J and cashed out, basically. And it was differentiated. At the time, there was like two other brands of insulin pump. There was Minimed, and, which was now Medtronic, and there was... It was Desitronic. 
Desertronic, that's right. The Swiss company, which then became Roche, right? Yeah, I lost track of them after a while. So at the time, you didn't really have that many options. Now there seems to be a growing stable of them. And I am interested. I am interested in so far as a lot of people find them beneficial. As I told my own CD, I'm in the process of adopting a smart pen from InPen, which is Medtronic. Yeah. Although Bigfoot has has one, although their distribution model is a, a little bit weird, but maybe that will change over time. But I am interested in the space, but it also seems to be evolving pretty quickly. And so you can't really say, well, this company is, there was a time when you can say Minimed was the undisputed king. Now there's so many others and more are coming all the time. You know, you've got Bigfoot is one that doesn't even have a pump on the market yet, but will at some point, you know, tandem and all the others. My personal favorite is if I were to ever return to a pump, I'd probably go with the um, Omnipod, which is who was the parent company of that? Insulet. Yeah. 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 So, and that's just because, I hated all the tubing and, you know, so if I go back to a pump, it probably would now, be that. Are you one. currently wearing a CGM? I do. Yeah. And, and which one do you wear? I wear Dexcom currently, but I'm pretty close to saying I'd love to say goodbye. And if some of the others, I'm sort of underwhelmed by Medtronics right now, but I do think Abbott's Libre is a, a pretty viable competitor and you can add you know transmitters to them and and turn it into a real cgm that has the alarms and the sharing capabilities that don't currently exist in the libre 2 model that's on the market but they have a new product coming out and that will have all the all of the what is underwhelming you about are you on the g6 i am i've had issues where it like randomly disconnects for a period of time. I never had that with the G5. And I don't know if it's a software issue or, you know, what's driving that. But there are some days where out of a 12-hour day that I'm actually awake, I may get 10 minutes in there that's actually working. The other thing is, I, for all they like to brag about accuracy, some of it is just a function of, I, I don't think it's any more accurate than the G5, first of all. I don't see see it in my numbers. And I, I do a lot of finger sticks. Are you checking with a blood glucose meter? Yeah. So you you still use a meter, not just, okay. Yeah, I've, you know, I've had issues with hypoglycemia on awareness for decades. And so finger sticks is really the only way to validate it. And so I do a lot and I also tend to calibrate a lot. And that's something else that. Now, now in your eyes, pardon me for interrupting, but in your eyes, and this is, this might be a generational thing. You see the, the finger stick meter as accurate. You know, there are issues if you don't wash your hands and stuff like that, you, you have, there's risk. I'm, again, and I, I, again, I'm not trying to interrupt, but I'm very curious yeah. there. Which meter do you calibrate with? Whichever one is, is the preferred formulary brand. <laughs> so th that's the reality. And for the record, I am currently using a Roche AccuCheck meter. I couldn't tell you which model. 
but that went off formulary July one. So when I exhaust that inventory, I'm back to one touch. So, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of like, I don't think patients truly have all that much choice unless you're on Medicare. Now, now this is interesting because I think it'll, it'll enlighten my readers because, you know, I've, I've described to them and, you know, you just gave the perfect example of this, that, that meters are a commodity and patients will use whatever they and there is this there is this perception that meters are accurate, which they really aren't. And yeah. you know that I don't think people realize that. You know, I'll, I'll share with you an interesting story. And I don't know if you know. Do you know Dr. Barry Ginsburg by any chance? I know who he is. I've never met him personally. Okay, but I'm I'm familiar with who he, he is. He used to work at BD, and back in the day, and this is way back in the day before I had gray hair. <laughs> We were, you and me both. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm too. So, so we go to this forum in Virginia where the FDA was getting input on making blood glucose meters more accurate. Okay. Barry went up there to give a speech and I, and it was, I'll never forget this. And he said that in order to do a correct blood glucose test, there were 20, if you do it by the manual, okay, there are 28 steps and you know, and he brought up an, you know, because you mentioned it before, he brought up a really interesting thing. I never even thought of this. This was way before TGM. He said, well, let's say, you know, a patient adds a donut. Okay. You get, yeah. you know, you get sugar on your finger. Most patients, you and me both, because I used to test a lot. Yeah. You know, we don't wash our hands. You know, you test your blood sugars. Yeah. And well, the blood's passing through the sugar and the donut. And, you know, <laughs> so it really, you know, it, you know, that capsulizes, you know, kind of how far we've come. Yeah. You know, and, and the other thing that you bring up, and this is also, I'm glad that you're explaining this because I try to write this a lot. I once said that when, when you're a device maker, especially now, I don't care if you're the Libra, Dexcom, whatever, your your life is a nightmare. And the, <laughs> no, the reason being is that think about this. You got to connect with the phone. You got to do all this stuff and nobody knows where the problem lies. You know, so you call tech support. Let's say you're having a problem with your Dexcom. Yep. You know, you call tech support. And you're saying, well, you know, my readings aren't going to the phone. Well, is it is it a sensor problem? Is it a transmitter problem? Is it a phone problem? Yeah. You know, so, you know, it is interesting how, and you've been around long enough where you remember the days when none of this stuff was interconnected. Yeah. So now, can you also explain, now, and, I, and this is curious, you are a patient, so obviously you have a, you know, a perspective. Have you found that to be... A plus or a minus when you're kind of doing like these debates with these people on Twitter? It sort of depends. If I get random comments from people I don't even know, because my Twitter profile is not like private. You can only private message me if you're if we're connected. But otherwise, anybody on earth can follow me. And so, you know, they may comment. If I don't know who they are, I, I don't engage with them generally. You know, on rare occasions. But so from that perspective, most of the people, and I do know them, I've met them face to face on multiple occasions. And I think a fair number of them who I consider like, you know, my regular followers, I do know these guys. And so, I, you know, I will consider comments and feedback. And sometimes they've changed my mind, you know. But like I said, in general, I find that 
people's knowledge is a function of how long they've lived with diabetes in the first place. If you're talking to a parent whose child was just diagnosed six months ago, it's a very different conversation with somebody who's lived with it for 46 years. And there's a whole host of issues. And sometimes you, I have to think in my own mind, what was it like when I was in that situation? It's not always easy. And sometimes you, sometimes you just give up because it's not worth the effort. But Okay, so let, let's expand on that for a minute because are you using any of the apps? Any of when you say... Like the, the coaching apps, are you using any of that? Oh, no, not currently. Okay. I've tried, you know, there is one that I have used. I can't say I use it all the time because there's one called T1D1, which is like a quick calculator Mm -hmm. that you can use to calculate what your bolus should be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can put in current blood sugar and how many carbs you're eating and voila, you get a suggestion based on your insulin sensitivity ratio. That just saves a lot of the manual calculation for me. And, you know, a lot of people with pumps or in the case of InPen or the Bigfoot Unity, the smart pen will, or the app that goes with it will do that for them. So they, they're not used to sort of thinking through the whole process and saying, well, wait a minute, the last time I ate X, that was too much or too little or whatever. And you do get sort of into a routine where you say, well, I've had this meal a hundred times. And so I need X units. And four hours later, you know, I'm where I want to be. So, but in general, I find that a lot of apps that are developed, particularly about by third-party developers, they think they're going to go make a killing because there's all these people with diabetes in this market and they're going to capture all kinds of users and followers and Maybe they'll pay for the app for a deluxe version. I find most of those apps suck. You know, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you. they've never solved it. They are solutions in search of a problem to solve. So now, and you again, let's go back to the insulin thing for a second because that's really what you know seems to be your big you know thing. Yep. You mentioned earlier, and maybe this is a great way for us to uh, wrap this up. You said that you, you know, the, somebody, the legislation is good, but it's not great. And you said that that's not how you would do it. How would you do it? Well, my first issue is, you know, not every drug is impacted by prescription drug rebates paid to the pharmacy benefits managers, who, by the way, are now owned by the largest insurance companies, like 75% of them are all insurance company subsidiaries. You know, Caremark is CVS and Aetna and uh, Optum is United Healthcare and Express Scripts is Cigna. That said, you know, I think I'm trying to think, what was your original question again? I get off on these tan- tangents in my mind. Well, let, let me rephrase this. You know, I think, every, I mean, you know, you point out like what everybody does. Insulin has been around forever. Okay. I don't know about you. I'm on, I, I use Novolog and Umalog interchangeably. Okay. Mm-hmm. And like you, you know, it's whatever my insurance and I, I happen to have very good insurance, thank God. And, you know, I do understand the sentiment that, Hey, this is, this drug hasn't changed in 25, 30 years, whatever. I don't know how long analogs have been out. And yet I think 97 was the first, was it? The first yeah, one. It might, yeah, yeah. might've been, that sounds about right. 
And, and I do understand that. And insulin, as you, I think you pointed out, I pointed out is the most heavily rebated drug there is. I, or third or fifth, something like that. It's, it's, it's up there. in the top five. Yeah, it's, 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 let's put it this way. It's on the podium. Yeah. Um, and some people want, and I'm one of these people, I want transparency. Meaning that if you're, if the list, let's say, and again, I'm just speaking hypotheticals. Let's say the list price is a hundred bucks, okay? If you're rebating, that, rebating them 30 bucks and then you're discounting it another 30%, I want that to be disclosed. That's transparency. Yeah. So yeah. that to me, transparency, shedding light on this, because you know the PBMs don't want, don't want people to see that. I mean, right. a lot of money. Yeah. And Novo alludes, Novo, I, I, I'm like giving them a lot of credit. They've actually started alluding to this in their investor presentations. So if you were, you said before, that's not how you do it. How would you do it? If you wanted, would you want, you said, and I, it sounded to me like you weren't in favor of price controls either. Well, not necessarily. I, I do think a lot of different pieces need to happen in order to get to where we as patients feel like we're not being screwed by one party or another. First of all, I think price transparency is good and it's necessary in a deeply secretive and cash flow that adds up to hundreds of billions of dollars. And by the way, there's something else in that I can I feel is worthy of mention, which is when you talk about prescription drug rebates and how the insurance companies back in like the 1990s decided, gee, we're not going to follow generally accepted accounting principles for prescription drug rebates. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners or NIAC decided they would not follow gap standards. And they, and they, most of them included as general revenue, you know, so you even forensic auditors have a hard time following the money. I think, first of all, transparency is valuable, but transparency alone isn't going to fix it for patients. So transparency needs to be there, but don't expect transparency is going to lower your price. Second of all, I think full pass-through of rebates to patients at the point of sale. If you're buying a heavily rebated drug, you should be getting the benefit of that rebate at the point of sale. If you're not, you're being screwed by somebody. Maybe you're being screwed by your insurance company. Maybe you're being screwed by a third-party PBM. Most insurance companies are using all that rebate money as insurance company premium offsets. So they're giving it to employers to reduce the amount of premiums that they have to pay for those that for, the, for their insurance plan. So there's a lot, a lot of things at work there. Transparency and pass-through are important. You know, and I do think, quite frankly, and I, I wrote to the FTC, Lena Khan had an open, an open forum at the beginning of July, I think it was, and I sent like a six-page letter on the subject indicating that I think lockstep price increases so you can give over bigger rebates to PBMs on the back end also need to be investigated. Is it, you know, they've suddenly, I think they've agreed that they're not going to compete on price, at least not with each other. And so that raises the question, the Connecticut Attorney General filed uh, several lawsuits on generic drug pricing and how through, you know, secretive meetings and conferences and all these things, they agreed to divvy up the market share amongst the different players in the industry. But they 
just agreed they're not going to pr- compete on price either. I think insulin is competed for on price. It's just that most patients don't actually get the benefit of it because of the convoluted distribution system that we have. Or so in your, I mean, you know, to capsulize it in, in, in a different way, the system screwed up. <laughs> yes, I wholeheartedly agree. So, and if you had to pick, okay, no, none of us are going to get what we want here. Okay, we all know that. Would do you think it is unfair, or would you say that there's not enough? You know, you and I are engaged patients. We're you know we're in it. We're you know. Do you think the average patient like you know do they care or, or are they just so fed up and they just said I don't care? You know, I think it's a spectrum, but I, I do think a lot of patients. And one of the reasons that we're hearing more about it is we got to a point where the out-of-pocket expense had increased so much, the patients were starting to notice and they were starting to bitch about it. And it was only at that point that it sort of blew up. And I think, I think to their credit, the at least Lily and Novo Nordisk did come up with a workaround, which is how can we bypass this whole rebate mess that we in fact created ourselves? And so they came up with their authorized generics. And as it turns out, it wasn't half price as Lily was promising everyone. You can get it for like 75% off with a good RX coupon instantly. No qualification, no submitting your personal information, bam, 75% off. So I do think that was a good solution, but they're not doing it for their newest versions. Fiesp and Liam Jev are not included right now. Although I personally have a feeling that Nova Nordisk is getting ready to retire Nova Law. All the signs are there. Fiesp is its newest patent protected product. They've done it many times over my 46 years. And they've got like three generics working their way through the FDA approval process, one of which is likely to get interchangeable designation. You know, the whole interchangeable thing, Lily didn't do it when it came up with its Lantis biosimilar, but the startup, the Biocon uh, Viatris did. And so now Lily may be forced. I think Lily didn't want to initiate a, a price competition with Sanofi. So they said, well, we won't bother with that. But now that somebody else has done it, it's anyone's guess what will happen there. Well, listen, on that note, uh, let's conclude this. It's been great. Okay. I love a patient perspective. Hold on. 